Hello and welcome to another edition of Eat This Podcast with me, Jeremy Charthas. Almost four years ago, I introduced an episode with the idea that if you, a listener, had to name a plant breeder, the name you'd probably come up with would be Norman Borlaug. That's because Borlaug is known, if he's known at all, as the father of the Green Revolution. He created the modern, high-yielding strains of wheat that put an end to global famine. People say that Borlaug's work saved billions from starvation. In 1970, he won the Nobel Peace Prize, and the authorised biography of Borlaug is called The Man Who Fed the World. Next week, PBS in the United States will screen a show called The Man Who Tried to Feed the World. That title suggests that maybe there's more to the story. And there is. I had a chance to see the film and to talk with Rob Rapley, writer, producer and director, about the film and about Norman Borlaug and his work. But why make a film about Norman Borlaug? I have... Uh, specialized to some extent in stories with a scientific angle. And so we're always looking for stories with a scientific angle that have a compelling main character. And we came across uh, Charles Mann's book, The uh, Wizard and the Prophet. That kind of led us down this path. It's such a a huge, huge story. And, And not very well known, and he's he's a very compelling character, you know, like him or not. And and how long has the film been in the making then? Uh, it was probably about eighteen months from conception to delivery. You you got some fantastic archive footage. I mean, stuff I thought I'd seen it all, but you you got some wonderful archive footage. How did you do that? Well, that I have to give credit. That there's a there's an archival producer who who really does that, and and that's a that's a, a a job of its own. If you dig deep into the archives, you know a lot of people. If you work fairly quickly, you tend to come across the same stuff. And if if you, when you dig dig deeply, there's uh, there's always more, and there's there's stuff that hasn't been transferred from you know that nobody's bothered to transfer to, from film to video. And if you can bother to do that, there's always more stuff out there. It, it's interesting because one of the one of the crucial archival moments is when you show the the the, the very first tractors, and how mm. the tractors kind of freed the young Norman Borlaug from all the work he had to do on the family farm, and I think you you kind of make the point that maybe that's where he got this fixation that technology can fix everything. I think that's absolutely right. Uh, it was such a, a pivotal experience in in his development to go from really farming in a way that would have been familiar to the ancient Romans, and with all the labor that that implied, that that children were working from a very young age, very very hard, and and then in the space of one season, getting a tractor and. Uh, it, it not only reduced the amount of labor, but increased their income because you didn't have to dedicate a chunk of the farm to forage. And so all of a sudden you could grow your cash crop on, on that farm as opposed to a subsistence crop. So for the first time, not only was the labor not the dominant thing in your life, but you had a little bit of free time and a little bit of, you know, his his grandfather showed up with a radio one day. And so it it just 
broadened his horizons as well. And I think that, um, as you say, was really, it planted the seed in his mind that this is, this is the future and this is salvation. This is an impossible task because uh, <laughs> you've made a one-hour-long film. Is it possible to tell Norman Borlaug's story briefly? Um, well, <laughs> yes, just not very well. The, uh, he grew up on a farm in Iowa in the early part of the 20th century uh, in incredible isolation. And then, you know, as, uh, as we discussed, that the, their lives changed with the introduction of technology from being really a subsistence farm to having a little bit of cash and leisure. And he, man as a result, manages to go to school after this past the, uh, the seventh grade, past elementary education. Um, went to school in in Minneapolis and studied uh ended up studying biochemistry uh and he kind of happens into this project that is being promoted by the Ford Foundation to improve agriculture in Mexico uh so he dedicated himself to this task and the specific task of defeating stem rust a disease that uh, was wiping out wheat crops in Mexico and around the world and had been for thousands of years and in the space of a few years through just insane hard work and uh, some innovative approaches managed to defeat this disease that had been uh, decimating wheat crops around the world for thousands of years. Uh, by this time, the geopolitical situation had changed and the, you know, Mexico and Mexico's stability was no longer the predominant concern of the American government. Uh, communism was. And so his work gets applied to a very different purpose, which is to feed the world and thereby stave off the spread of communism. And it is adopted in equal parts by governments around the world who are looking for food for their own people, but also a measure of independence in the same way that if you are not uh, struggling to feed your people, you can afford to uh, uh, to do other things, and including in, uh, become more independent of the United States. And so the government of India, for example, was looking to solve its very, very chronic food problems. And... Borlaug becomes involved in a, in a program there to implement the technology that he developed in Mexico. Uh, this kind of spreads around the world very, very quickly. So in the space of a few years, you go from a situation where the world was confronting widespread famine, and, and in the space of a few years, through this technology, that problem was um, basically alleviated uh, and he, as a result, was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize. Brilliant. I don't know if that was short enough. That was good. That was good. <laughs> um, but how did they know to recruit Borlaug for this, this job down in Mexico? Because he hadn't really made a name for himself at that point. Not at all. He uh, happened to have studied at the University of Minnesota with one of the main architects of that program, and... So the, the he was, you know, not not the top candidate in the country or anything. He was enlisted as the the low guy on the on the staff. 
But he took to it. I mean, he, he went down to Mexico and he really applied himself to it. And the goal was Stemrust. The goal was Stemrust. And it was odd because Stemrust uh, afflicts wheat, and specifically, not other crops. And um, Yeah, you think of Mexico, you think of maize. Exactly. The wheat was not the dominant crop in Mexico. It was only about a tenth of, of the country's crop. And so they thought it was a little odd, but it was actually the Mexican go- government had demanded that they include this in their program. Three of the four people were working on maize, as, as you suggest. Um, the Mexican government, uh, it's, it's a combination of things, but there's the usual kind of self-interest that the ex-president of Mexico had developed a whole irrigation system in the north of the country where his farm happened to be, and the crop up there was wheat. And so it was very much wrapped up in in politics, the conception of this thing. Borlaug himself, honestly, his his great virtue was his intense laser-like focus, which enabled him, you know, once he had his teeth into this to work incredibly hard but the the downside of that is that you don't don't look right or left and he never really thought about the political implications or anything else he had his task and that's what he was doing and and that that would play out over the years part of the laser-like focus is that you know where where a normal plant breeder would be looking forward to the winter and and sorting things out he developed this idea of shuttle breeding, where you get two generations in one year. How did, how did that work? That's right. So for centuries, plant breeders had believed that you had to develop a plant for the environment where you expected to, to grow it. And so uh, you were, of course, limited to the seasons that applied there. And Borlaug, to some extent, because he hadn't been... Uh, trained in the breeding of wheat, he decided to ignore this conventional wisdom and decided to, you know, to grow a crop in one place, uh, take the winners, uh, the very small number of plants that had really survived stem rust and survived everything else and thrived in those conditions, take them to another place, in, so from basically central Mexico to northern Mexico in very, very, very different environments, and then grow them there during the during the winter. So you would get, in effect, two crops a year instead of you know the the one that you would normally get. As a result, he was able to s- speed up the development time by a factor of two. And his his boss was dead against this. Was it just because it wasn't the received wisdom? That was part of it. But the main thing is that his boss had a much kind of wider worldview than Norman Borlaug. His his boss was really dedicated to helping the Mexican peasants who were clustered around in the region around Mexico City and who were, who were growing corn on very small subsistence farms. So this, this stem rust program was not applicable to them at all, partly because they were growing corn, but also because in order to produce the large yields that uh, the tremendous success that Borlaug was achieving you needed to use a lot of fertilizer chemical fertilizer and water both of which were rare and expensive in in Mexico that these peasant farmers didn't have access to it so his boss was focused on 
the benefit of these small peasant farmers and he felt that Borlaug was really going off on another track and losing losing sight of the focus and the, and the big goal. But he did come around in the end, I think, didn't he? His boss came around to some extent, well, he did come around, uh, he had no choice. His bosses, the top bosses at the Ford Foundation and the State Department, which was now getting interested in this program, were very, very excited about the wheat program, and they saw global applications far beyond the peasant farmers around Mexico City. And so Borlaug's boss was moving up the chain in the Ford Foundation, so it was either like the program or find another job. Hmm. What in, the, in the first instance, what was it that took Borlaug to India? By the early 60s, Borlaug had tremendous success with his program. He'd, he really had developed wheat that would yield huge, huge, uh, 10 times the amount of grain that, that um, traditional wheat had. And it also resisted stem rust, which was a problem in, wheat in India as well as everywhere else. Those seeds had been sent around the world as part of a UN program to uh, kind of develop agriculture around the world and combat famine and so on. And a scientist in India, Swaminathan, had found these and was developing them. And he invited Borlaug to come over to India to help uh, develop this and to, to help promote it. This is a point in, in the film where I got very confused because India had famines and to begin with, although Swaminathan was keen on it, the, the rest of India didn't seem that keen on it, maybe because they were getting food aid from, from the United States. And then just when there was a big drought in India, Lyndon Johnson, LBJ, cut off the food aid. And so now the Indians were quite keen on, on becoming more self-sufficient. And I couldn't, I, in my head, I know it's a complex story, but I couldn't work out what drove what. In other words, why did LBJ cut off food aid to India? There were several uh, factors that went into that decision. The food aid to India program had begun under Eisenhower in the mid-50s as a relatively small and crisis-driven thing. It wasn't, a, it wasn't supposed to be a, really a perpetual program. As India's situation worsened over the years, that food aid, uh, it obviously served American interests because it made the India more dependent on the United States, um, but that food aid program expanded so that by the early, early 1960s, they projected that the food aid to India was going to take half of the American wheat crop. Uh, it was not a sustainable situation. So the Americans become more and more uh, genuinely interested in promoting uh, agriculture in India because they can't sustain this, this aid program. Lyndon Johnson's Lyndon Johnson. So there were other factors that went into it. In uh, the summer of 66, I, I'm pretty sure that's right, Indira Gandhi, the new Indian prime minister on a trip to Moscow criticized the war in Vietnam and Johnson and even even more uh, members of Congress were appalled that uh, a government that they felt owed them its existence was uh, cozying up to the enemy and and criticizing uh, American policy and that was uh, 
a factor as well. It's, it wasn't the whole story. The, the, the basic motivation was just that this wasn't sustainable. But of course, you know, Lyndon Johnson is not a simple guy and never had simple motives. So the idea that the Green Revolution was fighting the Red Revolution, that's, that's real. That's not just a coincidence. Absolutely not. It, that, was, uh, that was baked in, so to speak, from the beginning. It was uh, not conceived as part of the war against communism because it, it was conceived before the war against communism uh, in the early 40s. But as soon as they realized its potential, it, it, very, uh, it very much became part of that plan. The Ford Foundation, which had conceived and funded the plan, was working hand-in-glove with the State Department by the uh, late 50s and early 60s. They were wholehearted uh, uh, soldiers in the Cold War, and uh, so this, this, there was really no distinction between State Department goals and Ford Foundation goals, and the overriding de- goal of the State Department was the Cold War. Yeah, yeah. And then, of course, came the Nobel Peace Prize very quickly, 71. It's 70, yeah. 70, 70. Yeah, yeah. Um, looking back, and with all the research you've had to do, was it justified? Um... Yeah, it's more justified than say Henry Kissinger's. You know, <laughs> you gotta gotta put it on a scale, or for that matter, Barack Obama's. Much as I, I I I love Obama, I don't know what he did to get that Peace Prize. It's hard to put ourselves back in that time. The population bomb, as it was then termed, and the looming global famine r- really was almost felt in the same way that global warming is now. So if somebody came along this year and solved global warming, you can bet that in two years they'd be, you know, lionized around the world. And that's what it felt like then. Looking back, we can see two things. One, that that crisis was exaggerated. The population bomb was taken up by journalists and and writers who, who really made hay of it and took a, uh, a genuine problem in parts of the world, in India and China, and, and projected it onto the world and, and just, just exaggerated it. There was a genuine problem, but it just was nothing like as pressing as global warming is now. And the other thing is that they couldn't see at that time how it was going to unfold. Looking back, we can see all of the negative effects that this has had over time. They just saw that, oh, wow, you know, the, the, this huge crisis that was going to kill us all is, is now gone. And, yeah. and so it's not surprising that he got it. And I don't think it reflects political calculation in the same way that, say, Henry Kissinger's does. Uh, but looking back, I don't know if the long-term effects of the Green Revolution would be hailed in the same way that it was then. Yeah, because, I mean, although India is, India is now a net exporter of food, but it still has massive problems of malnutrition. It still has one of the highest child-stunting percentages in the world. So, you know, it's, it's not clear-cut. It's not at all clear-cut, and this is where the story gets complicated. Um, as you say, India has become an exporter of food. Borlaug always conceived of this program as a war against hunger, but its implementation was up to 
the client governments and well and the and the American government and, and the the big actors and the multinational companies that had huge stakes in it. So its chief effect in many places has not been to lessen hunger, but to strengthen governments. And this is definitely the case in India. In the mid-60s, India was a financial basket case. It was entirely dependent on the American government, as could be illustrated with Johnson's um, blackmailing. And that is no longer the case. The fact that India is exporting food suggests that the problem there is not so much lack of food as it is priorities of the Indian government. It's distribution and poverty and so on. You know, that's a big question that goes far beyond Norman Borlaug. Borlaug played a a large role in the conception of this program, um, but almost immediately he was kind of shunted aside by much bigger players. He started off wanting to benefit the, the poorer farmers, um, in the end, maybe he didn't benefit them as much as he originally set out to do. It's ironic, though, that, that it was mostly the campesinos from central Mexico who went north into the United States to find work when farming was just no longer enough to support their families. That's right. It, the The long-term effects of this in Mexico are... You know, you you can't ascribe anything to a single cause. Industrialization. You know, there's so many so many things that go into um, you know a migration on that scale or something. You know, this goes back to what was the motivation, the goal of the program. The original goal was supposed to be helping the campesinos of Central Mexico. Borlaug took a different target. He said, "This is about fighting hunger, not about helping small-scale farmers who are inefficient." What's efficient is big, large-scale farms with industrial processes, and I'm gonna, that's how you're going to feed, that's how you're going to fight hunger, not with little small-scale farmers. And that was, of course, the basic fight in the, in the very beginning between him and his boss. So in a sense, you could say he did fight hunger, or he, he certainly helped increase the production of food, but he did not help small-scale farmers. Small-scale farmers were left behind in exactly the way that his boss had predicted they would be. Yeah, and, and, and they foresaw, back then in the 40s, they foresaw urbanization being the end, the end product of all that. I actually saw Borlaug once at a meeting, um, and huh. um, it was about, when was it, 2005, I think, and he gave a tremendous defense of technology and specifically genetically engineered organisms. Um, you didn't touch that in the film. Um, too tricky? Oh, uh, it's it's not just that. It's that he didn't play a significant role in that, and so his he de- he advocated all sorts of things that, uh, including DDT. You know, long after his his faith in technology and science was just never never affected by anything that happened in the real world, and I think it illustrates the the basic problem of the program and, and the underlying theme of the, the, the film, which, you know, it it's illustrates the danger of scienti- t- using scientific solutions to real-world problems, because it's the nature of scientific inquiry that you need to abstract a problem from its real-world context, and you analyze it, and you find a solution to that problem in the abstract, then you reintroduce that solution into the real world, and that's where you get all these unintended consequences. Borlaug never acknowledged really 
in any meaningful way the unintended consequences of his program. Uh, and uh, he um, kind of lived a life in isolation in a way, you know, first in Iowa and then the fields of Mexico. And so he never really engaged in the, with the real world in the way that some other people did. And, and I think that goes a long way to explaining the uh, kind of neg negative ramifications of the Green Revolution. And I think it's a kind of offers a warning for our approaches to global warming that, that science, science will play a role in that solution, I presume, but it's not a praying that there's a solution. Um, but we shouldn't rely on a scientific solution because there are always unintended consequences. I think the most telling moment of the film for me, and this goes back to what you were saying about the population bomb, was towards the end, you, 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 you point out that Borlaug only ever said we were buying time. I think you say in the film 25 to 30 years was what he thought it's been 50 or 60. But I don't know. I mean, I think, looking back, I think we've squandered the time that Borlaug and others bought us in trying to find a, an equitable, sustainable solution to feeding the people of the world. And I just wondered what your take on that was. I agree 100%. I guess there, there are two things. One is that Borlaug said i've i've uh, th this program has bought us 30 or 40 years this became his mantra that uh it's what he said you know when he accepted his nobel prize and he said it a hundred times afterwards that i bought us 30 or 40 years to deal with what he called the population monster the population monster is not so easily dealt with and so efforts to deal with the population monster in china india and elsewhere have led to huge human rights abuses and and generally the population monster is someone else's baby not yours um <laughs> and uh but i think you're absolutely right that once we had an easy solution and a very very profitable solution for some people and uh, and a very potent tool for governments to make money as as, as many are and uh, as you pointed out countries are exporting food while their own people are starving. The search for the solution to a very complex problem of how to feed people without destroying our resources and feeding more carbon into the atmosphere and so on, that's a, that's a difficult problem that didn't serve those interests. And so I think if, if everybody was being altruistic and farsighted we would have engaged with this far before now and it would we would be living in a better world but uh it is the nature of the world that you know something that feeds money and power is is going to get pretty deeply entrenched and certainly the green revolution is deeply entrenched rob rapley whose film the man who tried to feed the world is out next week as Rob said, the Green Revolution certainly is entrenched as the way to feed the world. But as we discussed, Borlaug himself always said that the benefits would be temporary. I went back to the Nobel lecture he gave in December 1970, when he had this to say. The Green Revolution has won a temporary success in man's war against hunger and deprivation. It has given man a breathing space. 
If fully implemented, the revolution can provide sufficient food for sustenance during the next three decades. But the frightening power of human reproduction must also be curbed. Otherwise, the success of the Green Revolution will be ephemeral only. The problem is with that word curbed. When sensible people have enough to eat, when their children survive and thrive, when they're free to control their reproduction, that's exactly what they do, without needing to be curbed. Borlaug gave us three decades, five decades ago. I wonder what the next three decades will bring. As ever, I'm always happy to hear your thoughts on the matter on the website at eatthispodcast.com or by email jeremy at eatthispodcast.com or, and this is a new one, through a new podcast app called Lyceum. Lyceum hand curates educational podcasts, we're one of them, and makes it easy to chat about the show in the Eat This Podcast discussion room. You can download the app to your phone by going to lyceum.fm. That's L-Y-C-E-U-M dot F-M. Thanks again to everyone who supports the show with a donation. Lyceum makes that easy too. And it's been a while since I asked for ratings and recommendations. So consider yourself asked. For now, though, from me, Jeremy Chaffers, and Eat This Podcast, goodbye and thanks for listening. <laughs>